um, how how can we defend ourselves from falling just mindlessly falling in line with what uh, a group thinks and being able to come out with ideas of our own? How can we think for ourselves? Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made for and by changemakers, where we gain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. I am your host, Lucas Scrobot, and today we are back with Brandon Polk. Brandon has been on the show before. He is absolutely brilliant. And I know at the beginning of this episode, we're going to be talking a lot of issues that currently exist within America between ethnic groups, between races. And if you are listening and are from the Middle East, which I am guessing that you are, I want you to do this for me. I want you to think of how this dialogue of things that are happening currently in America, how it applies to our world in the Gulf, between ethnic groups, between tribes, between people of different classes. How can we also begin now to bridge the gap between people that we do not normally associate with, to begin to build empathy within our communities, within our our spheres of society, to include people that have been marginalized. So put that filter on as you listen to at least the, the first part, we're kind of hitting on some racial American U.S. politics and racial issues that the States is going through currently, and then later on into the episode, we will also be hitting on things that are highly applicable to us. And stay tuned for next week's episode where we unpack a little bit more uh, the hard solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Outside of race, outside of it, but just in the identity of a person, even it's even indicative of of the privilege and some of the trauma that white people are going through is having to be like, who am I? And now latch mm-hmm. on to this issue and say, this is who I am. I'm an advocate or I'm an ambassador for this issue. Right. And the reality is that you're maybe you're more looking for validation in your identity and not even aware that that's what's happening. While mm. This becomes the issue that sets you up to feel better about you. And it's not even present. You're not even present to it, right? It may, I'm not right. saying that's 100% it. And it's not about taking it. We need white folks to run with it, right? And to do it. And then the question just sort of becomes, you know, what is the ultimate like intention there as the quote unquote white majority, whoever that person may be, is going through their own process of how, how do we do this in a way that we dedicate our lives to it? And is this about making money? Which is a, a weird kind of reverse of using the issue, the black issues, as opposed to the black right. directly as slave energy or slave labor. Totally. Your, <laughs> you know? well, it's, it's like those, it's like people who are making money off uh, fighting sex trafficking. Right. Right. It's yeah. like you're, you're using people who have um, been victims mm-hmm. um, and abused and horrible things. And you're leveraging that, for your own financial gain Uh or uh, 
some organizations who, you know, do refugee work, they are leveraging crisis in the aid of that crisis, but for their own financial gain. Right. Right. And so it's it becomes complex because there's the half of the argument. It's like, well, in order for us as an organization, if you will, uh, to tackle you know huge issues like millions of refugees or um, sex trafficking, there needs to be some sort of financial model so that they can pay their bills and cover the logistics to provide aid or relief or development. Um, but how do you do that without um, having a mixture or B being perceived uh-huh. as uh, leveraging a crisis to build your own platform right. in your own circle, in your own context to look good uh-huh. to the people that you care about rather than solely helping right. others? Right, right, right. And I think, you know, how do you avoid it I mean, or, or how do you mitigate for this? I think it is just really learning that this is something we need to communicate around and, you know, totally get that in order to do the work, you have to be present enough to do the work. So someone's got to make money, right? In order to actually live while pursuing yeah. the work, totally get that. And then we have to actually just address, hey, what's this? I'm a little skeptical. What's going on here? What are you yeah. doing? How are you living your life? And, and I think a lot of that too. Is it a matter of how, if they're living a congruent life, like, is there mixture or hypocrisy, a lack of sincerity where on one half they're showboating an issue, but on the other half, it's not something that has penetrated or really saturated who they are as an individual? Um, Yeah. I mean, like, how do you, how would you, how would you rectify like a situation like that? Yeah. I mean. The, the number one thing that comes to mind is, is I think that for any decently mature person, we have to understand that people are, um, are a, a combination and, and the sum of several experiences and several mm. and, and, and different conditions within themselves. I think like we are walking conundrums and contradiction mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So for sure there's altruism and then there is also deviance, <laughs> you know, and, um, and so speaking to the altruism is really important and acknowledging that there's something wonderful happening here in the revelation and then the insight that a person is getting what they're gaining around the issues and then there's also this subcontext, even not even sub sometimes just like writing your face kind of context around hey like you get to pursue this in a way that i would not be able to pursue this as a black or brown person Mm-hmm. At least not generally, right? And not in my psyche. My road. Can you unpack that a little? I, can you unpack that a little I bit more? Can so like my road to starting a business and being successful in that business, or successful in my career and having something that I owned, was um, only achievable in the death of my identity, in a sense, so that I had to conform in order to make nicey nice and get some opportunities, right? I didn't sell myself out, but I did have to learn how to build bridges to code switch to do all those kinds of things, right? So there are things uh, that... To become more appealing to the white eye? Totally. 
or to become more yeah. appealing to the white eye to become rather maybe even not even so much appealing but just less threatening right and huh. so I, I actually become more normalizing within the white experience because of uh-huh. how i communicate how i dress um my sensitivities you know in language communication my intuition around who i Uh with that's one side of it and then the other part of it too is that i also had to come with a with a decent amount not only of academic prowess but Mm -hmm. um experiential prowess as well in order to make sure that i was still able to bridge the gap so i spent here again i spent 12 to 15 years in the field as a social worker right working with black kids able to articulate for them for the black and brown folks what's going on right as i'm learning Mm-hmm. from them and then i happen to have this space where i've got a master's degree i've i've been at harvard i've been at princeton i'm curating programs here and da, 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 and just building relationships you know and then, I'm, mm. and then there's a there's a validity a, a reliability a credibility that gets attached to me because of where i've been had i been mm-hmm. somewhere else right and someone met me they probably would and, and i had not had exposure to those spaces then i would not have probably been asked to even be a part of the podcast someone else would have but you don't feel like there's that same credence for you or people of color to have an idea and to execute outside of our own communities and sometimes even inside of our own communities it is much harder to gain the credibility in order to even begin that to to why why is that even within why is that within your own communities why is that difficult to get buy-in from people within your own community? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's the suspicion of being a traitor, <laughs> you know, that if you're building bridges, then you're not black enough or you're not brown enough. Right. Is it because of, is it, is it, so help me, help me here. So is it that any white person um, just has a greater ability to start something that's entrepreneorial is yeah, that that's right. what we're speaking and, and, about? And, well, and definitely harder for a black person, you know, or a brown person who hasn't come with some credibility, right? Who hasn't come with right. affiliation, some association, right? With with so it's not like it's you're not saying that across the like across capitalism that if uh, you and someone else had the same idea with the same credentials that one would take off, but you're specifically talking about building bridges across culture and, and engaging in this conversation. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that there are probably some other examples outside of the bridge building, you know, but I think that totally uh-huh. like that, that, that's just what I'm present to right now, you know, now in this day and age, you can, you can probably break out of that as a black and brown person. People have done that before, um, which case in point, sometimes people will say, you know, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstrap. So and so did it, right? That black person did it. Mm. That that brown person did it. So then you can do it holistically. Black people, you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and not be in and not be the status quo, right? But the mm-hmm. fact that that is the how we think about things. Some sometimes the challenge is is to say why couldn't the little black boy in Southeast DC who has a good idea pursue that idea and then not only like get credibility because he's doing it because he's trying something but he would actually have the whole of not only his community but then the external out outside community white majority community say that's a great idea let's help this kid Mm. right and his idea 
or this 20 something person who dropped out of high school, dropped out of, didn't, didn't go to college, but is so smart, right? He doesn't get the same chance who, mm-hmm. who, who is white. We know several of them, right? Who are just creatives and they do their thing. No one has any, you know, no one knows anything about their background or anything else like that. You know, they just know they can do something. We know that they are talented, gifted, and they go and they make a living doing that thing, right? That's not something yeah. that's always accessible for black and brown people, if not just because you put so much of a focus, you know, on, um, on, on a traditional sense of education, you know, post-secondary ed, things like that, that not everyone has access to. And then so rating and, mm-hmm. um, and the, the reason why that focus exists, it's because it's the easiest way in our mind still to go from high school, college, graduate school, PhD, whatever it is, in order to gain the credibility from the majority that actually gives you opportunities in life. So, yeah. Don't, do you think that, um, you know, as I'm reflecting on what you're saying, I, I don't, I agree with you that I don't think everyone's born into a level playing field. I don't think that, um, the globe is a level playing field. Um, it would be pretty hard to make that argument that, you know, that that someone born in any one of the 50 states of America has um, has an equal footing with maybe someone born in, you know, mm-hmm. the middle of Africa or the, the mountains of the mm-hmm. Himalayas. So I don't think, you know, I think um, a world that is has an equality of of um, opportunity I, I think is nearly impossible just because of you know the family that you're born into um you know for me for instance a lot of my success i can even point to because of my parents and their their ability to network um not necessarily on something that i did but i'm capitalizing off of my my family's you know work before me um and so i can understand how um in the black experience due to slavery that was um systematically broken down Mm -hmm. right um but i guess my question is and i don't know if this i i don't deal a lot with these subjects um, the subject matter. So I'm, I'm, it's a little fresh to me, new to me You're to safe. think about, You're safe. but <laughs> thanks. Thanks, You're Brandon. Um, um, so my question is then, wouldn't, wouldn't there be people in America who are white, who don't have a network, who didn't come from educated families, who don't have um, maybe the same uh, family privilege. I don't want to say white privilege, but just family privilege based on what their family did, what their fathers did, their forefathers did as, you know, some kid from East DC, um, regardless of the color of their skin, doesn't some of this have to do with, uh, just the, the family that they're born into and like, doesn't that play into it as well? Certainly it does. And I think this goes into a, definitely a, a common question around is white privilege a thing um, for everyone using the very same example that you just gave. If mm-hmm. someone's from 
you know, uh, you know, a common example, you know, somewhere in Boston, you know, or outside of Boston, you know, where you have a lot of middle, lower middle class white families, you know, that are living there. And there isn't a lot of access, you know, to higher levels of resources or, you know, whatever that might be, just because mm-hmm. of the family experience, family history, all of that. Um, yes. The answer to the question is yes, you are entirely correct. And the answer to your question is also, that's not all. <laughs> so Yeah, it's, it's more, more complex right, than, than just right, that. Right. And the... Especially with, with slavery right. and the, the systematic breaking down of the family unit in Definitely. America. And perpetually for hundreds of years. Right? Yes. So, so Absolutely. given the unequal, non-equal, the uh, different experiences for white Americans, right? But not every white American is a millionaire or comes from a millionaire background. And we know that. Not every white American comes from an, ed- from an educated or from an education background, not, not, no one is completely the same, same thing for black and brown folks. And not everyone, not every black person came from an, an impoverished background, right. Or a lower middle class yeah. background. You know, there were lots of folks in my family who were millionaires and were well off and were educated and things like that. And, and that was one of, that's one of the reasons, you know, why we're probably having a conversation today too, <laughs> you know, is just how we would met like right. organically is because I had that value for education that was embedded in me because of parts of my own family that were invested in that and invested in that generationally for us. And then mm-hmm. we go up another 30, 40, 50,000 feet on the whole thing and look at the map and look at the map of history. And we could actually put little, I don't know, kind of nerve endings or synapses or whatever to mm. every decision point that was made over the last 400 years and how it impacted people today. And then mm-hmm. you can see, in a sense, I wonder where the map would light up red, <laughs> you know, in terms of certain decisions, macro decisions, micro decisions that had an impact and have an impact on the whole of minority America today, you know, or or even mm. minority experiences across the globe, right? So not just in the West, but also in the East. And, um, but in particular for this, just where we're at right now, like we would be able to probably see, you know, what the impact is and how strong that, that, that data is if you connect it all the way back to the beginning of slavery or when the Dutch brought the first slaves over and who was born to who and how that happened. I think the same thing is true for for Hispanics also, you know, and, and their history during the era of civil rights. I think there's a lot now it doesn't they don't have a slave history per se, but you do have a civil rights history in America that we don't really talk about very much. So it's not just black mm-hmm. folks we're talking about. It's not just Hispanic people we're talking about. We are talking about First Nations, Native American people also, of course. And sort of what's going on and what their plight, you know, has been over the course of the last several hundred years also, um, in a very real way and still dealing with them. Like we're still getting apologies mm. for broken treaties out of the American government at the state level and working on them at the federal level, right? Where a broken treaty typically meant not only that you weren't given food or whatever the, you know, the byline of the treaties were, but you were often shot, killed, your children, your women were raped and your children were murdered. I mean, it was that kind of thing. We were doing that, yeah. you know, as a part of, <laughs> you know, building a better America, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were doing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. totally, you know, and, um, and it's difficult to say we're going to give an apology, you know, at the federal level for any number of these 
things um, because of a little off subject, you know, but just be, because of fear of uh, lawsuits, I think, you know, for reparations and things like that, you know, to give an official apology for something like slavery at the federal level is uh, leaves you open to litigation. And that's why. And, and, and for me, there's just someone will do that. <laughs> you know, there will be a national apology for slavery at some point in the history of our and mm-hmm. the history of the world. Um, and there will be people who will try and make good off of that, you know, through litigation, reparations and things like that. So I, I think that at some point in, in the context of human history, that both of those scenarios will play out. And ultimately, the buck will land with people who are willing to do good and love one another and not try and gouge one another out of pain and bitterness or whatnot. Right. So, um, but I think that you're, I mean, I know that your original point is right. You know, that like not everyone that come, not every white person that comes from, uh, you know, not like a generational wealth, um, a point of view or history in their own lives. Now, that being said, as because of the infrastructure or the systemic structure of racism, either way, <laughs> either way, there's still varying degrees of privilege in the context of that, right? For someone that is white, even if they come from poverty or lower middle class or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So then what, what is, um, and this might digress a little bit more, but um, what, what is the solution, solution to that then? Like as a, and this is where I, I, I feel like the, the conversation becomes uh, increasingly cloudy is when I hear white people then say, okay, well then, you know, what, what am I supposed to do with my white privilege to uh, rectify the, you know, the family that I was born into? Um, and I haven't heard a, an answer that, that, that seems to be acute enough or concise enough or meaningful um, all the answers that I've heard, it's very vague and almost uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not attacking, mm-hmm. but a kind of a heated mm-hmm. response of saying, well, well, you can't do anything. You just have to listen. And it's like, well, at, to what extent, like to what extent then does the angst get resolved to to rectify um, a, a, a situation that was where where people groups and nations were um, systematically destroyed by um, governments and systems systematically for generations. Yeah, and and I like to be as clear as possible. Of course, as you well know, I think that there is a tendency to just shame you know, and say, just be quiet and listen. I think there's a place for listening because there's a learning curve there that's happening. You know, you are a right. part of the majority and you're having your own wake-up call. That is a disillusioning wake-up call. It is not an easy one to contend with. And especially if you get down into this and in, into not only the personal psychology of it, but the generational um, like psychology for white America or whiteness around mm-hmm. the world. Um, colonialism, all of those things, you know, then that is a, that is an, or even the construct of whiteness itself 
um, takes away from every white person in their own history, their own story, right? There's such a washing of culture and genealogy and all of that just kind of goes away and it loses its importance even in the person's life in the context of their own story. And, you know, I think that even in light of that, I think that there are a lot of things that people can do. I think that there's a research into your own history. What is your story? What's your family story? Do you have a heritage? Do you have a lineage? You know, and don't just tell me the good stuff. Don't just tell me about, you know, mm-hmm. all the ways in which your, you know, your, your grandfather did this and he was a auto mechanic and he had, you know, hundreds of employees and he really blah, 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 blah. And then you go back far enough and you leave out the fact that your cousins or, or that your grandfather's great, great grandfather was a, whatever he was, right? Now he may not have been a slave mm. owner, but maybe he was. And if he wasn't that, then what was he? And then look at what's going on in the history of the world during the times that what, you know, your family's doing, right? And what was the stance that they were taking? Do you know? Do you not know? Have you been silent? Has your mm-hmm. family been silent? I think that this is also part of the story. It's like, you know, not so much right. what you did, but what you didn't do. And what the opportunity And do you say that to both sides of the conversation? 100%. And there's even some tattered history for black and brown people and their own history out of the, um, you know, uh, there are even stories, you know, about how black folks, you know, when they were getting freed or, or they were free black, whatever, um, that they had their own servants and their own slaves. You know, but, but we know that those examples like existed, you know. And, and even if you're, go- I mean, if you're saying to go back, I mean, how far, and this is where I think the the conversation gets more and more, I think we see stuff at high resolution, but then I also feel like uh, the conversation becomes more and more convoluted because, well, if you if you keep on going back to generation after generation, um, there's arguments that would say, well, before slavery even mm-hmm. existed, um, you know, African people groups were oppressing yeah. African people groups that, you know, white people were enslaved to the Roman Empire um, and then when you continue to expand the borders, um, we can look at America and say, well, you're the top 1% of the world's population and you're actually oppressing and abusing hundreds mm-hmm. of millions yeah, of people. Yeah, 100%. And I think that to a certain degree, we have to go back. And ultimately, going back is not to try and make a case, you know, for every, like, atrocity, you know, that's happened in in. in and, you know, or whatever, yeah. whatever it is. I think that that is just to give us a, a springboard to basically say, hey, look, look at the psychology of humanity. Like, look at what we've been doing to yeah. each other over the course of like thousands of years. And can we, should we not look at the present right now and say, what can I do? Not even we yet, but what can I do? And this goes to your initial question of like, so what is a person supposed to do? What are they allowed to do? What are the boundary yeah. lines? You know, what are the, um, what are the options? Listening is definitely an option. Here's what's in listening, asking questions. Asking questions is important mm-hmm. because you don't know. And, and just because you're there with me in a space, I don't know what you don't know. I don't know what you're not comprehending. I don't know if I'm connecting with you in the storyline of what it means to be black and brown, right? So there's that. Listening is also mm. asking questions. So there's that. There's learning. Yeah. Um, reading, I always say this, read books that weren't written for you. 
you know, go over to some other right. space <laughs> that you. I've heard you say that, and I yeah. like that. And put your face in a place <laughs> that wasn't meant for you, also. You know, put your face in a place that you typically wouldn't go to. So it's read books that weren't written for you and put your face in a place. So what do I mean? It's like show up in a place that you typically wouldn't go to. Build relationships that you typically wouldn't if you're part of the authority because you have the mm. option to not do any of it. If you are a minority anywhere in the mm. world, you don't have the option to not consort with white people on some level, you know, or to have to think about a white person at some point, even, you know, just depending where you are around the world, it's just like, this is just it. You have the option as, as being part of the global majority to just say, Hey, look, we're just going to stay in our white community and that's it. You know? So that's very intentional and what, and and putting your face in a place, it's like actually showing up as you are and taking the risk to be that build relationships, building relationships is what we have. This is the equity that we're bringing to the table for the next 100 years is our relationships. Mm. That's it. We can have these conversations around practically what it means to, you know, do uh, uh, better lawmaking or decision-making. That's always going to be the case. Mm. How we do better lawmaking and decision-making, policy-making and advocacy and communications and programs, all of it is all coming out of the equity that we have in relationships. All of it. And hmm. if we don't do that in the context of civil discourse and toleration and engagement in the scary things, then we won't be able to have the conversations yeah. we need to have in order to build healthier policies. What's also interesting about that is that right now we don't have very clear distinctions on what policies need to be made because most of the issues are going on in people's hearts. We don't have a, uh-huh. a, a clear picture right now like we did in the 60s of the fact that we needed to outlaw lynching. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have that right now. You know, that's been totally. outlawed. We made that policy, right? We know you're going to jail if you do that, <laughs> you know, or something as clear as totally. that, right? And it's not as clear now what the subversive racism is, what the things in our heart are, where we're just taking um, uh, or, or, or not taking opportunity to excavate around uh, being complacent you know, on the issues now, because as I heard someone, I heard a commentator recently say, you know, can't we just, and it was a commentator on a major news network here in the West who just said, Hey, we can just get over it now. Right. We can just move on. And this was just the other day. And I was like, well, yes, mm. but what, what, how, do, how, how do you want us to move forward separate or together? You know? Right. Good, cause moving, cause moving on, uh, takes a, a mutual, a, a mutual repentance and a mutual reconcil. Uh, I know you don't like the word reconciliation because it it implies that at one point that there was a concilement, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it it takes a mutual um, agreement of shaking hands so that you can walk down the mm-hmm. road together. You yeah. have to agree, and that takes owning, owning and taking responsibility where there's been. Right. Definitely. And even in regards to the word reconciliation, I'm all for using terms that people understand and then we educate around it. And what, yeah, what is really important, um, more important is saying where you have the power and everyone has power regardless 
of who you are, where you came from, or even these structures that we're talking about today. Yep. Power comes yeah. from the inside of yourself, right? Um, yes. So I have a question. Uh, sure, I'll let you finish sure. your thought on that um, question. Yeah, just the only thing on that thought is, uh, or the last thing on that thought is um, what service looks like when you have power, when you have opportunity, is not to remove race from the conversation, but it is to say, don't let race be the thing to keep you from doing acts of service, like literally doing what should mm. be done when you see someone who is hurting who needs help. If a widow is a widow, she's not mm. a better widow or a widow that's more deserving of help because she's white and because you might be white. And that's the access point that you have is to a, a widow who is also who is a white woman. And then you're more inclined to help her, right? But what if you knew someone that was, or, or maybe you are, or not you, but just in, in general because of our connection points or whatever, we are generally in contact in the majority with your own kind and the, and, 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 and in the minority with our own kind, right? So the reverse is also true. Yeah. Now, if you see a black woman who is a widow, what what are you doing for her, right? Um, or if you see a a black or a a brown orphan, you know, what are you doing for him or for her? You know, are are we acknowledging that there's a a dissonance with within us that says yes to some because of the color of their skin? Um we say no to others or, 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 or say no to others because of the color of their skin. Right. And so we just, and we don't know it's just embedded in our experience at times. It's easier for us. Um, it's like giving to the poor is hard because we sometimes look at the poor as though they're dirty. Right. And if you're a dirty person, I don't give to you. Right. Yeah. So we have to actually confront what that means in our hearts as if to say that I am not dirty. I am so clean that you, I cannot touch you and I will not give to you. And we make up all of the, excuses and rationalize why I won't give to that person because of X, Y, and Z thing. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that's just what we do, you know? And yeah. mm -hmm. I, f I feel like, uh, though on that subject, that almost like the, the reverse would be true that a white person would be more likely to help a black orphan uh -huh. or a black mm -hmm. widow. Maybe. Because, because of, but then, it, but then, then it seems like when a white person is helping a, you know, black orphan, then it's the, the suspicion or the accusation mm -hmm. arises that they are trying to, um, you know, bridge the gap in a way that's easing their own tension so that they can feel good mm -hmm. about themselves by helping mm -hmm. someone else. And then they're now accused for their mm -hmm. own selfish gain by doing exactly what you said, by helping a black orphan. Yeah. And here's. Yeah. So I feel like there's this catch 22 that, that on both sides of the aisle, that there's, it's, you know, damned if you do, mm -hmm. damned if you don't. And here's what I say to that. And you're entirely right that that experience is completely accurate, not holistically, but in, some cases, you know, uh, yeah, maybe most, I don't know. Totally. Here's what's real about that though. This is part of the consequence for slavery. This is part of the consequence right. is that if you're going to go over to the other side, there's going to be suspicion <laughs> and it is not illegitimate suspicion. You didn't do it right. Not personally, anything to create or, 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 um, like encourage that suspicion per se, not thinking, right. 
Uh It's already kind of there. But this is, but of course it makes sense. I mean, put yourself in those shoes, right? Just in in the natural context, you know, someone betrays you. I get why there's suspicion, but then it's, but then, but then it's, it's confusing. I think that it's confusing to the white narrative because they're saying, well, but this is what you asked me to do. This is what you said, stand up and do this. And now I'm standing up and doing this. And then you're saying, oh, well, you're just trying to capitalize off of our Mm -hmm. experience. Um, But then if you don't stand up and you help a white child instead or a white widow, then it's there's the accusation of, oh, well, see, I told you. And so and so and that's where I and that's where I personally get um, confused within. And again, I don't I I never have to deal with this just based on living mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Um, but this is where I get confused within the narrative where it does seem like the answer is not either side of the aisle um, doing something or doing some some act necessarily or saying the right things or asking the right questions. But it seems like there really does need to be um, for lack of a a better word, well, maybe a good word would be, and there needs to be a a level of repentance and um, reconciling between the two aisles because it is the breach of relationship which is the issue rather than the the he said, she Agreed. said. Agreed. You're, you've totally hit on it and we've hit Right now, in this moment, in this conversation, we have hit on, uh, I don't know, sort of like, this is where we stop digging, generally in the conversation, right? I think that what we're digging, that w- w- like once we hit it and get the shovel through this part of the ground, this is what we get, is exactly what you just said. But I'll say it this way, uh-huh. that a program yeah. without relationship is not a healthy or sustainable program. <laughs> Right, a hundred percent. That very experience 100%. that you just described—that damn if you do, damn if you don't—kind of thing. Of course, it's going to be that, right? Because there's too much pain in the history, right? Only way, right? Because there hasn't been a mending exactly. of relationship, exactly. And we haven't even intentionally gotten close enough in our proximity, literally living in the same space or being relationship or, or being in some sort of relationship where we're breaking bread together and hasn't intentionally happened in a way that is constructive to having that conversation that in building that relationship, then we actually, that grows us into the opportunity for repentance, right? And being able to say, oh my goodness, I didn't mm-hmm. know as an African-American person that I was creating that experience for you. That's the last thing that I because then there's a level of shared meaning that you can then see the I'm other person. I'm shaking my hands in. in the air going, amen, because this is what, this is exactly what the breakthrough point is. This is the strategy. Yeah. This is the advocacy. This is the program. And I will, whenever I go out and I start talking to people about, say, like the rates of HIV in the black community, and then I'll be in a room that's predominantly actually filled with white people who are awesome and loving and want it. And they want to go out and build a program around it. And the first thing I say is do not build a program. <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Totally. You need to just totally. go make a friend with someone who has it <laughs> and start learning and creating this context for, for catching 
the narrative of another person's life, the story of their essence. And you get that, but yeah. that's so hard to do. And that's what I want to acknowledge. Because that yes. takes time. It takes yes. emotional labor. It takes uh, yes. discomfort. But I think across across the, you know, the the topics we talked about before, whether it's the uh, the Palestine Israel conflict, whether it's refugee, whether it's um, orphans or AIDS, it's we want to create programs, but the program isn't the answer. It is the sitting down in the dirt with people and becoming vulnerable to understand their story and their narrative. And the times that I've seen. Uh, people wanting to come and, uh, you know, set up programs, uh, around people, um, without that relational connect, it always feels so detached. And as if they are leveraging someone else's, um, misfortune or tragedy, Mm -hmm. atrocity for their own financial or, or prominence, uh, mm-hmm. in their own game. That's definitely true. And that's not to say that we don't want the programs or that we don't need them. Right. We totally do. Right. The sustainability plan can never, cause there will, there will never be enough programs. There will never be enough programs because there'll never mm-hmm. be enough money to sustain all of the programs so that people can make the money they need to be a part, to be invested. If you're invested in the context of being a director or a, or whatever of a, a program, right? Yeah. Where the sustainability is, is in how a community takes care of itself, how the community engages within its own resources to take care relationally and then understanding a need and then banding together to fill the gap in the community because the gap in a person's life or in a child's life or in a family's life is a gap in the community when the community is really sensitive and aware to that, um, that person or that family or that participant in that community. It like, it, it hurts the whole of the community when the community becomes invested in a, in a person, every person, right? Mm. There's always going to be a multiplicity of resources where people are coming out of their relational equity. It will always yeah. be enough yeah. <laughs> when it comes from love. And there will always be enough mm. when love allows people to, to, to sit in a chair at our own tables, as opposed to some, sometimes a, mm. a program is something that keeps you on an island relationally and emotionally. And, and that totally. Is, because you're just running a system rather than right. having relationships. Then you, you know, inadvertently become a part of the swampiness, <laughs> you know, because then you have to get the government grants. You've got to get the people to give you money here and you get on the rat race and it becomes really, really hard, you know, to sustain that for any person, regardless of what your race is or regardless of who the creator of the program is. It's just super hard to live that life, you know. Is this why, I mean, America is, you know, frothed with the word tolerance, but it doesn't seem like it works. And is it, is it because it's, it seems to be, um, a word that is reliant on systems and distance rather than vulnerability in relationship? 
last time I know we talked about sort of defining words. <laughs> this is another it, word yeah. that we have to define is tolerance. And there's, there's tolerance in the way that we mean it. And there's tolerance in the way that we um, live it out. Right. And live it out. Fundamentally what's happening in the West, at least and around the world, you know, but definitely tolerance right now definitely means I'm going to give you my opinion. And if you don't conform to that opinion, then you're not tolerant. Mm. I think we did talk about this before when I said, you know, what kind of like, what is true tolerance is that I, I can engage right. and, and at the same time, while I'm in discourse with you, not violate my own principles and values. I can do that. Totally. This is the manifestation of tolerance is that I'm willing to learn while I'm willing to say, Hey, I'm here right now and I might still be here, but uh -huh. I value you as a person and I value sort of the fundamentals of your self-determination and your decision to live your life. Now I may disagree with how you do that, but you are a human and worthy mm -hmm. of attention, love, affection, affirmation. You are worthy because you exist. Right. And that seems like um, joining on and, and joining hands on relationship and our humanity rather than saying if you rather than dividing on ideas and saying if you don't have the exact same ideology um, as this group or as I do, then you are not tolerant. Mm -hmm. Right. And we see it. I mean, and I, I don't see yeah. that. And I don't see that um, lessening right now. I see that escalating. No. I, oh, I so see it. So That's I the, the that. essence of identity politics, right? 100%. You know, and what identity politics, we get into this thing. It's like, it's postmodernism. It's like, it's beyond where we're at right now. But that there so can you break down, break down identity politics for us? Yeah. Um, d per perfect. So um, where we're at right now, I think we're still at the end of an era where politics was a bit more civil, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I think we're still in it. On a global scale. On a global scale, we're still in this period where mostly people are civil, um, maybe not on television, <laughs> but in the practice of politics, people are working together still, you know, trying right. to. Now, what I call, what is sort of like postmodernism, right? So like there are people that are living on the fringes and on the extremes, right? And then, mm -hmm. and then there is a constituency of people either in those, in the camps with those leaders or the follow media or whatever it is, there is a, a consortment of those people that are on the postmodern left or right, the postmodern mm -hmm. liberal or postmodern, um, like conservative, um, uh, yeah. can you break down, can you break down a, a clear definition of what does it mean to be Postmodern, yeah, postmodern. In my view, I think these are uh, a, a a group of people who ascribe to an ideology that is extreme off of off of the majority within their own party or okay. within their own ideology, right? So they are um, forward, <laughs> whether you agree with the forwardness of it or not, <laughs> you know. But it's right. just pressing more into leftism, pressing more into conservatism. Um, mm. on whatever. So you can be, so here's what happens in the context of, of that postmodernism is that then you, um, don't, you are not able to get into a room with a person and have a conversation with someone who was the extreme 
of their own position <laughs> or of their own right. family of ideology, right? They are more extreme, you know? And then the same thing on the right. I mean, we would look at this several years ago and say like what the Tea Party was in, a, in, in America was, a, was an expression of a postmodern right, right? It was right. furthest right to the right, to the right. Right, right. right. Um, and now in this generation in America, we've got now the Green Deal folks, you know, the Alexandria Cortezes, and then some of these other folks, um, Congressman Tlaib, whoever, like all these folks who are yeah. on the fringes of liberalism, right? They are moving closer towards socialism. And in their thought, they would not say that per se. Well, some of them would say that, but really it's just like, you know, they are, they are moving forward or moving more to the left of their own party's ideology. And what happens is that what are they doing? And this is another factor. They're actually leading the party. They're leading the ideology and those that were attached to it. So there are more people coming over to their side. And right. Same thing's happening on the right, you know, um, and uh, less visible on the right right now, um, uh, just because of the election season we just had over here. But um, but it's going to swing back around and we're going to have both parties or both ideologies sort of like stretching towards their extremes. How do you get those people in a room together and say, hey, let's make nice and let's do good and let's generate some awesome things for the world? How do you do that? So so in identity politics, it's it's. Can you so that's kind of like that postmodern how how each party or each um, ideology is is moving further and further from the middle of of reasonable discourse mm-hmm. and and compromise um, and mutual agreement to polar opinions and uh, not able to have a rational discourse with one another, right. Yeah. And, and, and so yeah. Uh, how does identity politics fit in the midst of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, how it, how it fits is that that's be, that becomes the actual narrative through which people are running campaigns. Gotcha. You know, this is how people are getting you to vote for them. They get, I mean, I think mm. whether you're furthest on the right or furthest on the left, it is with these extreme, you know, 10, 15 second, 30 second sound bites or three minute interviews you know, there's a shame that goes into the middle. <laughs> and mm. If you don't come further over here, you're not an actual patriot. You're not well, even a good person. <laughs> I've heard, I've been in conversations with, with uh, people and I can see that they're caught up in, their social group is caught up in identity politics, which is going really, uh, this conversation was to the left postmodernism. Um, on the left side of the party, that I the person was so froth with anxiety and fear over what they said, over their appearance, um, that they would, I saw them flip-flopping, they would say something that they thought and they believed, but then when it, later on, when it came to put that on the record, um, they, they backed down from their own belief system, their own ideologies because they were afraid that it didn't match the ideologies of their their the group that they were a part of that they had a thought outside of their group and therefore they were afraid to own something outside of the identity of the group uh for fear of their own um uh isolation or um what's that word getting cut off from ostracized 
ostracized, thank you, being ostracized mm-hmm. from their own party because they didn't fall in line with every step of the ideology. Is that what we're seeing across identity politics? Yeah, that's precisely it. And then the only thing that I'll add is then it becomes um, the mandatory club. You know, like you mm. have to become a part of the club if you're going to be seen as viable. Now, viable is what? And it's all or nothing. And it's all or nothing. And so you're viable as what? You're viable um, in your business, viable in um, as a leader, viable um, as a, not only in politics, right? But these are the externals, right? So it goes beyond the actual politicians or the policymakers that, that are doing this. But they have constituencies that are also being brought up. I mean, it, it is actually the people on the ground that are part of democracy or part of the republic that are saying, hey, wait a minute, if if a candidate isn't this extreme either, <laughs> then I can't vote for them, right? Right. If, if a candidate isn't exactly what a non-participant is, like you, I mean, you can have a person, you know, who is not even in the district of a person that is voting or that's up for office, who's being influenced um, maybe in like the Midwest in Indiana by a politician in Massachusetts. You know, and that's the identity, you know, that they take on in their own proximity and their own geography. Right. And they're forcing then another candidate who is concerned about getting reelected for good or for bad <laughs> with how they're playing to that base. Right. And so mm. we'll play to certain affinity within that base, even if it's extreme or feels extreme or is part of the postmodern left or right, they will do that. And they're willing to do that, willing to placate to the base. And, uh, um, and of course we see this at different tiers of government, right? So now it's, now it's at every tier of government in the West, you know, because of the way the presidential election rolled out here, how divisive that was. And I would even say Mm -hmm. not not just at the 2016 election, I'd say the 2008 election, (laughs) right? Right. Also part of that, right? And, 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 uh, and that was the beginning, um, well, not the beginning, but an escalation of the divisiveness and party um, around, um, uh, partisan politics. Um, and, uh, and then everybody gets on board, you know, from the speaker of the house, whoever that was at, at the time, different parties have held it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So how, how do you, how do you, like normal people like us, me talking and people listening here across, you know, specifically across the middle East, how do we, uh, defend ourselves from falling into group identity politics how do we defend ourselves from the divisiveness or the the intimidation that is brought on by that groupthink where um, it can be quite frightening to have a thought that falls outside, not necessarily of maybe a political system or a political party, but even of, um, you know, your, your, your group that you identify with. Um, how how can we defend ourselves from falling, just mindlessly falling in line with what uh, a group thinks and being able to come out with ideas of our own? How can we think for ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really great question. Some of the things I'll repeat. One, reading, looking for information. And it's not just books, but reading articles, looking for contradictions. I think mm-hmm. that even as we're talking about some of the Enneagram earlier, you know, like, like being an, an investigator in, in the context, you know, of what's going on in the world today is required if you really want to get to the bottom of things. Right. Yeah. And, 
this takes this also takes time and so not everyone individually has time for it so how do you do it so this is point number two which is in the context of relationship in the context of community mm. right but here it is it has to be the constitution of that community to say we're not just going to take x y and z news outlets word for it we have to actually do some research within the research and as it's coming up in relationship then we take it upon ourselves we're motivated we're compelled to learn the truth while we are then in as a part of the constitution of that community saying we're going to respect and dignify one another right we're always so it takes so it takes individuals within a community to begin to create change within their community to say we are going to go beyond what we are being told mm -hmm. and we are going to talk with people who don't look like us, talk with people who don't think like us. We are going to read and understand other people's narratives across uh, religious lines or religious sects with, within a religion, um, race or tribe. And, and then as a community, we are going to, um, within that relationship, begin to explore other experiences yes that yeah. it, it can't That's just right. be an individual but it has to be a, a cohort of people that that say no we're we're going to do research for ourselves and think for ourselves and search for ourselves yeah definitely and what are those experiences right there is even in the context of the of a judicial understanding of synagogue right and church there, it was expected that people had different points of view. As you were looking at Torah or you're looking at Quran or whatever it might be, whatever your text is, that you're yeah. battling that thing out at a theological level, at an academic level. And why, why would you do that relationally? You do that. And this is what politics was, was built on as well, right? That you battle things out so you get closer to the truth. The truth of what? Not, not like conformity, right? But the truth of the urgency of helping other people how are we best going to do that? So the experience is not also in the learning and, and in the healthy challenging, like a healthy challenge culture, but also then taking that into our philanthropy in the world and saying, how are we actually getting fulfilled in the context of this community is by helping the greater community where we see mm. the need. So there is learning <laughs> and then there is learning. There's learning individually, there's learning communally, and then there's doing in the context of community and family in order to help other people. And that brings fulfillment and bonding and fortitude um, to the sustainability of, of a healthy community. And this is psychology. That's all at work here, right? This is the psychology of right. function. That's it. You know, whether it's spirituality um, or emotional connection or both. And spirituality, you know, very much, I mean, it, does, it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with your curiosity about yourself and the world and why it is and why you are and all of that. Right. You know? And so you bring all of that also into the context of the conversation and say, we're all here for a purpose, right? Mm. <laughs> we're all here for a reason. Yeah. So what are we yeah. Doing? We have to do something. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the divide and differences between Sunni and Shiite and between, you know, Abadi or Wahhabi and so different, you know, Islamic religious sects. And what you're saying, it's not necessarily about getting the facts and having a, a, a intellectual conclusion of what is true or what is not true. But like if, if it ended there, then we would miss it. You're saying that there needs to be an outworking of a relationship and seeing value in other people. And, and that, that happens within a community aspect 
of understanding the humanity of, of someone else's narrative. And then it has to play out in a, in a, in a physical manifestation of, of doing within that community to produce change. Right. And wouldn't it be great, you know, if in our micro families, communities, that we were able to sit around in a room, living room, whatever it may be, and actually know that the person who believes something different than, than you is completely mm. committed to your success in the world. That would be powerful. That would be powerful completely that that other person who was your opponent and you as their opponent on certain things, on certain fundamental things that you both yeah. refuse to let the other person fail. That would be the greatest feeling on earth. Amazing, right? Amazing. And what actually- It's liberating. It's totally liberating. There's a feeling of like, I'm, I'm feeling like there's a feeling of safety. There's a feeling of security, a feeling of trust. That's right. And if not, this in the way that the, and, and, and this is where I see things happening is that there is a natural tipping point. There is a natural self-organizing around this that will be occurring and tipping point, meaning two to 4%. I'm looking at a small group of people looking at the mm-hmm. moment of those who are really committed to this, you know, who are at, um, who are pursuing their own enlightenment right now are the folks that are going to be leading the way when the snow yep. comes, you know, and not only the snowball of negative things coming out of government, out of community or business, whatever it is, but it's the snowball of positivity that's coming from the new age, from the new era of leaders who are actually able to reboot. Like there's a system shutdown and then a reboot that some of us are already going through around civility, right. And around civil discourse. Mm. And as that's happening, we will be the ones actually with our integrity intact, understanding that we're not perfect humans but we're willing to take this on ready enough to take this on to actually lead the way in a new society, you know, in a fresh mm. society that's going to need more than ever bonafide co-belligerent leadership. And that's uh, mm. in the context of loving the other and as opposed to otherizing people that are different. So what, what, you know, what do we need to do? What do, you know, the person listening to this, what do we need to do to see that happen? Is it, creating a culture where we ask questions and we listen is it what is how do we how do we become that person mm-hmm. that is coming to their own own awakening yeah well not easy i like pause a little bit because i don't know if it's i mean i think that if you're listening to this narrative and this is connecting with you then what's happened is that divinely or something going on, you know, um, something that you're already primed to listen for, that you're already on this path. Right. Mm. And you should listen right. to that and trust the intuition of, of that. A lot of other people aren't going to, I don't know if it's something that we can teach. I don't know if it's about being taught this. It's about this being mm. taught, you know, and the right. this has to be caught. And typically what opens people up to this, open to the possibility of being more, of being more enlightened, of being um, um, a, a, a helping people who are others focused and people who are um, moving towards um, not just being co-opted by a narrative that's been given to me, but instead wanting to break out of the status quo and learn for myself and and be centered and, and, and grounded in in my own identity and in my own voice, that those people have taken the pain of their own lives and it's helped to break them into the opportunity and the potential for becoming integrated in the world, right? So what does that 
Mm. It means that I can engage another person and it doesn't mean that they're the enemy <laughs> because I too have my own pain that I have self-inflicted, things that have been inflicted upon me. Yes. And I yes. too am human and I'm going yes. through any amount of mixture. And this person, though they sound like I would never want to hang out with them at all, I recognize because of the mercy I've had to give myself, the compassion I've had to give myself, I've had to grow into as a person, as a human, that they too are also worthy of that compassion and that mercy and that window where I can have a conversation with them and see what they're about. Yes. It's your own pain that actually opens you up to it. It's not the perfection of life, right? It's not having money. Mm. It's not having all the resources. It's, it's none of that. It is when you're in depravity, when you're in scarcity, this is the thing that opens you up for the learning and for the listening. Wow. That was, that was something else. That was you got to be open to it. You got to be open to pain and you got to be open to sorrow. And we have to make a, an extreme return to what it means to lament in the context of our culture, of our cultures around the world. Yeah, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, in the beginning of this episode talking about the, the, the narrative between whites and blacks in America, the, the, the slave narrative um, in America. And for the sake of um, the listeners, I want to just uh, widen that to understand that um, even though we're talking about a, a sub, we're talking about a, a subculture or a sub issue in the globe that the principles still apply um, everywhere in the world. It applies in, in our small towns, in our, in our microcosms of relationships, whether it's within families, whether it's within tribes, whether it's within regions of, of a nation, whether it's within nations, right? Yeah. Is that right, That's Brandon? Right. right. And, the answer that I just heard that you gave, um, which is being vulnerable, op- being vulnerable with our pain, uh, being open to experiencing pain, open to experience hard emotions and realizing that that we have been a part of hurting people, that we, ha- we have a responsibility where we have wounded and hurt other people around us and that we have been hurt by people. And then looking across the table or across the the river or the lake or the wall and see that someone else on the other side they too have been responsible for hurting people and being hurt by people and they too carry pain a story a narrative struggle that that is the answer for both the issues of the racial divide in America and the issue for tribal divide or nation divide here in the mm-hmm. the Gulf region. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That is correct. And I think you'll experience that. Of course, you experience it, you know, in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You have you have the exact oh, same man. thing going on. It's the postmodern right and the postmodern left, right? And then they're the extreme rightists who are like, there will never be a solution to this, you know, be, yeah. because of who has right to what, <laughs> you know, right? And um, and then there's the postmodern left that's saying the exact same thing. They just have, you know, they just believe they're entitled to it, right? So it's like, I'm entitled to it, you're entitled to it. And then there are the people that are in the middle, right? And I've been calling mm. it this, you know, that the truth, um, you know, is in the center, rather it's in the paradox. And I think it's Brene Brown that I heard that from initially, who said that that the truth is in the paradox. I've been calling I love that. I have, I've been calling that paradox this. I've been calling it the M M and the M. 
which is the manifold mystery in the middle. Manifold mystery in the middle. Break that down for me. Mystery in the middle. So manifold, it's like a really important and large mystery. That's the other M that it's Mm -hmm. in the middle. It's actually in the center, but it's not center Mm. politically. It's in the place of our greatest tension. The center Mm. is the center. It is the nucleus. It is the place that we don't want to go because it's the hottest there. (laughs) It's the center of the world, you know, that we're like, do we get in a machine and travel all the way to the hottest place in the world, knowing we're afraid we're going to blow up or get burned, burned alive. (laughs) You Mm. know, it's, Mm. it's the area of our greatest tension is the middle. I love it because I, I I always have hated the word balance. Whenever someone says, well, you need to be balanced. I'm like, what does, no, you don't need to be balanced. And I always use the word tension. No, things are held in tension. But I, I like, um, if it's Brene Brown that first said it, the word paradox mm-hmm. and how you said it, it's it's a paradox. And I think that is a, a tighter language for a meaning for the word tension, where it's that we live in paradoxes and there is that that tension that, that hardest place of staying in the middle between two tensions. Yes, yes, yes. And the cool thing about a paradox as well, you know, if you're thinking about it spatially, is that it's actually inside and outside of the context of time. You know, so mm. you have to actually take into account the very thing you don't understand. <laughs> and yet you also have to take into right. account the thing that we're slave to, time. And that outside right. of time, there's an understanding that I couldn't possibly get because I'm not the creator of time. So I don't understand. And the mm. impact of what time has on me because I'm not able to exist outside of it and actually see it and explain it Gosh. all the way around. So what the actual understanding of paradox is or the um, like acceptance that there is a paradox, right? that there's stuff going on that I can't see is it opens you up to the possibility that I also don't know what's going on with this person's experience. I don't know everything. Mm. I just don't. And there are themes that are flying around me all the time that are inside and outside of time, but not disconnected from a person's experience inside of time and even generational time, right? Yeah. So coming back to the Israeli Palestinian conflict Mm. and, um, and you, you were, you were talking about, and I interrupted you, but you're saying it's the, the answer is found in the paradox for those who, you know, in this region who, are struggling with that. What does that mean? How do they live in that that middle ground of white hot tension? Yeah, I think that's a really. I mean, there there's something so unique about this conflict because it is so rooted in religion mm-hmm. and what religion or, or, or and 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 faith and mm-hmm. in um, tribalism, right? Right. Uh, which is fundamental to identity. And so it's not like in the West, at least not as extreme where we're talking about whether you're Democrat or Republican, we actually don't have an ancestry, like a a genealogical or ethnic history that's attached to our partisan politics, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. This is different in the Middle East (laughs) because the actual politicking that's going on is built around ethnocentrism and faith and religion. And so it makes it that much harder to disconnect from what would be an extreme point of view if you're defining Mm. 
not only the political position, but you, but the validity of your own ethnic identity based upon that political totally. position. Right? Totally. So totally. what does one do? This is a very good question. What do, what does one do for your audience, you know, um, in the Middle East? As I think, and I'm going to give an unorthodox answer here without being facetious or vague, right? I'm going to try and not be vague. I don't know if this is the right answer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Own the Future. Your listen means so much to me. If you have made it this far, I ask one thing, that you would share this with a friend or an enemy that you love or hate. Share it with someone. If you got any value out of this, please share. And remember, if you own your story, you can own the future.